You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's ask God's blessing on our time together. Our Father, before us are some very uh, difficult and hard to understand things. We we know that your word has both to it the simple things to understand and also very deep things. It is our desire that you would give us today understanding as we look at some very complicated and complex things. We pray that our minds would be open, that your spirit would be here and active and instructing and teaching us in your word. We commit our time and ourselves to you to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're in, uh, Noah, would you mind shutting that door for us? Uh, we're, this is now the third part of a three-part series on what happens to infants when they die. And uh, last week's did not get recorded for some reason, so which is just fine by me because it was kind of a convoluted mess anyway. So I'm going to quickly review what we covered last week for those who might not have been here. And um, that'll help out on the tape as well. We'll just go over it quick. And then if this turns out being a convoluted mess, then I'll make sure this one doesn't get recorded either. Last week, we we said that there are four possible answers to the question of what happens to infants when they die. They either, some go to heaven and some go to hell, all go to heaven, all go to hell, or only baptized infants go to hell, or go to heaven, sorry. And we ruled out the baptism issue. And so basically, it boils down to three possible answers. All infants who die go to heaven, all infants who die go to hell, or some go to heaven and some go to hell. And so last week we finished looking at uh, Ecclesiastes and we went into the New Testament. And what we're trying to do in answering this question of what happens to infants who die is we are doing much, we're basically doing a systematic theology. And that is, we don't have any one verse that you go to that says all babies who die go to heaven. There's no one verse that says that. Just like there's no one verse that says God exists eternally in three persons who are all equal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal with each other. There's no one verse that says that, but when you systematize all that Scripture reveals about the nature of God and how he exists and how he has made himself known, then we are left with the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the same way with this doctrine of what happens to infants who die. We're looking at what the Bible says about infants, what the Bible says about heaven, what the Bible says about the nature and character of God, what the Bible says about salvation, and we're putting together the pieces of how God views infants and and therefore what happens to infants who die. It's my belief and understanding from Scripture that all infants who die go to heaven, not to hell. And it's not some one place or some the other. It is that all babies who die go to heaven. I've been trying to lay out that case for you. Last week we looked at um, the question of why God commanded the death of some infants in the Old Testament, like in the children of Israel coming in, wiping out the land of Canaan. We answered the question of how does election factor into this discussion? Because if all babies who die go to heaven, then by necessity all babies are included in the election of grace. And so we looked at the nature of salvation. On the cross, in the atonement, Christ purchased those babies just as he purchased his bride, the church. So that on the cross, Christ paid for the, the sin and the salvation of those babies so that they could be imputed righteousness. So a baby gets into heaven, not because it earns heaven or deserves heaven, and not because it doesn't deserve hell. 
It has no righteous merit in and of itself, just like you and I have no righteous merit. A baby goes to heaven because righteousness is imputed, that is credited to its account, based upon what Christ did for that infant. And then we also looked at, uh, oh no, we came up to, and now we're going to look at the issue of how can a baby be innocent if they are born sinners? Because we looked in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, how God says that those babies who were offered in pagan sacrifice to pagan gods were innocent. He calls that the blood of the innocent. So how is it that a baby can be conceived in sin to be a sinful being from the moment of its conception with a sin nature and a bent towards sin, and yet at the same time be called by God innocent? How do we bring those two together? So that's what the first question we're going to answer, and then we're going to deal with on what basis could a child be damned, and what does an infant experience when they die and go to heaven? And then what about the quote-unquote age of accountability? So that's kind of where we're going today, answering all those questions. Before we begin with the subject of how can they be innocent if they're born sinners, is there any questions or comments about what we've covered so far? Okay, here we go. In your Bibles, <clears throat> turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We're going to answer the question, what is it that damns an individual to eternal punishment? What is it that damns an individual to eternal punishment? Revelation 20, and we're going to we're going to be looking at quite a few passages here as we sort of work our way through this, because this is the big issue of what... How can a child be innocent if they're born sinners? Revelation 20, and we'll begin reading at verse 11. Then I saw, now this happens after the tribulation. This happens after the millennium. This is the, the final big event prior to this whole world, heavens and earth, being consumed by fire and God recreating a new heavens and a new earth where he will dwell with his people for eternity. So this happens just prior to that. This is the last big event before the dissolution, the decreation of everything around us. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne. That doesn't mean young and old. It means those who are great in, in social or, or you know, stature by our perspective, the presidents and kings and royalty, stuff like that, and the small, that is the nobodies, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, dead, uh, and the dead were judged from the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what are they judged according to? Their deeds. They're judged according to their deeds. What is it that damns somebody? Okay, okay, Dorothy says not willing to accept Christ. As, as Christians, oftentimes we try and make our case to unbelievers by saying, if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to hell. And see, to an unbeliever, that doesn't make any sense because they're asking themselves, why does that make me worthy of hell? Just because I don't believe in Jesus. What kind of a, what kind of a damning thing is that? It's not not being, it's not, it's not our lack of accepting Jesus into our hearts that damns us. We are damned because we are liars, we are blasphemers, we are thieves, we are fornicators, we are adulterers at heart, we've dishonored our parents, we've broken all of God's moral law, and we are idolaters. That's what damns us. So at the end, when the wicked are judged, the wicked are going to be judged according to their deeds. It doesn't say they're going to come before Jesus and he's going to say, you never accepted me. 
Or you never trusted in me, therefore you're judged. No, they're going to be judged according to their deeds. It's because they are fornicators and liars and homosexuals, etc., that the wicked are damned. Okay, so that's Revelation 20. You can keep your finger there if you want because we're going to be turned turn back there. Yeah, go ahead, Dorothy. Right. Right. Uh, Paul says you were once homosexuals and liars and thieves and blasphemers, etc. And such were some of you, but you have been set apart and sanctified. That's where the gospel comes in. The gospel rescues us from the penalty that we deserve. So the wrath of God is the penalty that we deserve for violating his law. And the gospel comes in and says somebody else bore your punishment. It's not you need to accept Jesus because if you make a decision, you're going to be saved. It's that he's the only one who has paid the penalty for your sin. You have to cast yourself upon his mercy or you suffer the wrath of God. So such were some of you. We were those things, but we're not anymore because God has saved us and he has saved us by providing a substitute to bear the penalty for our sin in our place. So what damns us is our works, our deeds. That's that's what we will be judged for. Dave? Maybe you Yeah. So if you're innocent, you're innocent from that. And I suspect that the infants and the young children have not even been able to commit to you that would be worthy of not being innocent. Right. That's where we're going with the term innocent. Okay. What damns somebody is that they're not innocent of committing these sins. Okay. So look over at, uh, you keep your finger there because we're going to come back to Revelation 21 and 22 in a second. Uh, 1 Corinthians. This is the passage that Dorothy was talking about, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look at one, two, three, four different passages here, and then back to Revelation, because I want you to see this. Scripture always describes the inhabitants of hell, and it lays the stress upon the deeds or the willful acts of sin and rebellion that landed them in hell. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. They had been that, but they weren't anymore. So how, how does the Bible describe those who will not inherit the kingdom of God? They are what? Covetures, blasphemers, idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals, effeminate. The inhabitants of hell are described by the sins that they have committed. And the scripture lays stress upon the sins, the deeds that land them in eternal punishment. Okay, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19, familiar passage, the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh... Are evident. Well, I wait till you flip there. <clears throat> the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Okay, once again, he's describing the people who are in hell, who will be in hell, who will not inherit the kingdom of God, whose eternal destiny will be hell, and it describes those people by their deeds. Remember back to Revelation 20, we're judged according to our deeds, or the wicked will be judged according to their deeds. Ephesians chapter 5, convenient, next book over. Verse 5, For you know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What, who, what is it that disqualifies one from having an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? The fact that they practice these sins, and they will not repent of them. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you once walked and you once lived in them. Well, what things? Verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay, so what is it that damns somebody? Back to Revelation 20. Deeds. It's your deeds that damn somebody. or It's the deeds, that the willful acts of sin and rebellion, which damn the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when Paul describes those who inher- will not inherit the kingdom of God, he doesn't say those who don't accept Jesus into their heart. How does he describe them? They are those who are idolaters and fornicators and thieves and liars and blasphemers and all of the things which are violations of God's law. That isn't what it is that damns somebody. The primary work of damning is really the unbelief that is coupled with, that is coupled with faith that is not present in the person who is damned. In other words, they willfully reject and rebel against the light and the truth. They will not turn from their deeds and trust in the Savior. And so they are damned, and the vehicle through that of that damning really is their unbelief. Because they will not repent and believe, they are therefore damned. But what is it that they get justice for? Once again, it's their deeds. <clears throat> it's Revelation 20. Yeah, yeah, Brian. I think it's Yeah, yeah, exactly right. The lists are not exhaustive. It's a good point, but representative. I mean, you could go on and on and on with the sins that uh, those who are damned commit. Yeah, good point. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So once again, who is it that gets that? The liars and fornicators, those who have committed those deeds. Revelation 22, verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Okay? So, it is unbelief coupled with all of those sins that you've seen listed in all of those passages which justly damns somebody. So if an infant, if the wicked are punished or judged for their deeds, what has an infant done to deserve judgment? Right. That's... Very good question, and we'll answer that in just a second, because that's actually the fourth question that we're getting to here when we, when we deal with this subject. So what, what has an infant done that is worthy of judgment? Just being born. Okay, so here's my question. Can you think of any place in the New Testament where we are said to be judged or damned or cast into hell because of what Adam did? 
What do we get from Adam? We get a sin nature. We get a sin bent, which will inevitably, without fail, manifest itself in depravity and rebellion and wickedness. We also get death from Adam. But are we ever said to be cast into hell because of Adam's sin? What are we judged for? It's our own deeds. Scripture is clear. God does not punish children for the sins of their parents. I'm not punished for Adam's sin. I get a sin nature from Adam. I get to die because of Adam. I am guilty of Adam's sin, but I'm not damned for Adam's sin. I'm not judged for that. It's not being born of Adam that makes me culpable of judgment, the wrath of God. It is my own willful, knowing, rebellion against truth, against light, against the gospel, against God. That's what makes me damnable. It's my own deeds which make that, that are the basis of my damnation. Does that make sense? So I'm drawing a line between what Adam gave us. I don't get punished for what Adam did. I get punished for what I do. It is unjust to punish me eternally for what Adam did. That's not biblical. That's not justice. I get imputed the guilt of Adam's sin. I get imputed the uh, sin nature. I get the sin nature and the corruption that Adam brought, and I get to die because of what Adam did. But Scripture nowhere says that we're damned because of Adam's sin. We are damned or judged because of our works, our deeds. We're judged according to our deeds. That is the uniform testimony of Scripture. We are judged according to our deeds. Now, if a child has not committed immorality, lying, stealing, and all of that, and willfully, intentionally, knowingly rebelled against God, then they have nothing for which they can justly be damned. As when I know you're thinking, okay, well, I know that my kids manifested sin really early on, and I had to curb that. And you're right, you do, because what you see in your child is that sinful nature. It's not, your child is not pure and innocent in the sense of lacking any propensity or bent towards sin from the moment of their conception. They have a bent towards sin that is just, all of us do, a bent towards sin that is almost unbelievable. You see it in the wickedness and depravity of even a kid that's five, six, seven months old. You see that that bent towards sin. But is that child willfully, knowingly rebelling against what it knows to be true? It's not. It's expressing the willful bent towards sin. But that child is not at a point where it can understand issues of justice and truth and sin, and righteousness, and holiness, and those things which are required for us in order to be saved. Yeah, that's required. That's that's part of salvation for us, is understanding the holiness of God. Okay, so, yeah, Peg. Yeah, let's bring that up when we deal with the question of age of accountability again. Because I do want to get to that. And um, Jess is coming back next week, so I have to get through all of this. Or, Go ahead, Dave. Well, do you think there's such a thing as a, some sort of a moral compass in everybody? Yeah, it's called the conscience. The conscience, yeah. Everybody has a conscience. So, yeah, Brian.
Right. You can be a sinner without being guilty of a sin. Right? Even as an adult, you can be guilty. You can be a sinner today and not be guilty of having lied this morning. Some of you have come here. You haven't lied yet today. And, and that's a great thing. Just because you're a sinner doesn't mean you're guilty of lying today. You haven't lied today. So you're not guilty of that. You can be a child and be a sinner without being guilty of committing any crimes against God. Even though you have a sinful bent, doesn't mean you're guilty of committing a crime yet. So the question is, on what basis does God determine that we are guilty? It is unbelief. It is, you go back to Romans 1, it is the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. That's what it boils down to. That's why, that's what makes humanity damnable. When you suppress the truth, that is, you understand the truth, you know it because it's revealed in creation, it's revealed in conscience, we know what the truth is, and we suppress it, we push it down, and we deny it. And I think that once a child reaches a point where they suppress the truth, and they commit a willful act of rebellion against what they know to be true, and they are rebelling in their heart, that's when they become culpable. That's when they have committed that. Against God. Against God. Uh, A child, we'll we'll deal with this, the age of accountability. We need to get to that because it's kind of, it's all flowing over here into each other. So let's, let's get on to that. Um, Okay, so does everybody understand that? Got through that thus far? Steve. Uh, Briefly, you said just a minute ago that Adam's sin is imputed or his guilt is imputed to us. You just said we We haven't committed any sin. Guilty of committing a sin. It feels like a contradiction. Can you just explain it? Yeah, that's a good question. The the act of Adam, his, his guilt... His sinful nature, his uh, the death that comes through sin has come upon all men because all of us sinned in Adam. Though all of us sinned in Adam, we're guilty of doing what Adam did, and we are, had we been in the same place under the same circumstances, each person would have done that. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 5. That guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us, but Scripture never says that we're damned because of what Adam did. We get a sinful nature because of what Adam did. We, he acted as our representative, as our federal head, but that doesn't mean that I am guilty or will be damned for his sin. That's not justice. We're coming back to what justice is. What is justice? Justice is somebody getting what they deserve because of a crime that they have committed. Did I sin in the garden? I did not do that. I will not be damned for that any more than I will be damned because my father was an alcoholic. And my father was a drunkard and an adulterer. I'm not going to be punished for my father's sins, my grandfather's sins, my great-grandfather's sins, or Adam's sin. I'm punished for my own deeds. Now, I inherited sinful nature and a sinful bent and death from my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and Adam, but I'm not punished for their sins. The child is punished for his own sins. The parents are not punished for the sins of the child. The child is not punished for the sins of his parents. So, did you have a question? It's both. It's why we die physically. It's also, it's also what we get because we have, we've sinned and we've sinned. We get spiritual death. We are spiritually dead before we trust Christ, before God regenerates us. We are born spiritually dead. We are born, I am in no way minimizing human depravity. And if you know what I believe about human depravity, then you don't question that at all. I'm in no way minimizing human depravity. We are as sinful and fallen and depraved and wicked as we can possibly be. We have a sinful bent that is irrecoverable apart from divine grace. 
and it renders us unable to repent or to believe or to understand truth or to do anything that merits God's favor. We have no act of righteousness in and of ourselves. We are born, DOA, dead on arrival. We are spiritually stillborn. That is our condition to come into this world. Spiritually stillborn, not a spark of divine life in us at all. But does that ju- does that make me damned? What am I judged for? It's my deeds. It's my own it's my own personal crimes against a holy God that make me worthy of judgment. I'm not going to be judged because my dad was a drunkard. And I'm not going to be judged because Adam sinned. I'm going to be judged because I then do exactly what Adam did, which is rebel against him, and I manifest that rebellion by doing all of my own crimes against God. Anna. Right. Yeah, the, the law is a, and what James is talking about there is that the law is a package deal. You can't, if you've broken one commandment, you've basically failed to meet the standard. That's the idea. You might as well have broken every commandment because you're, you're no better off by having only sinned once than you are if you sinned a hundred times. Because you've still fallen. You're still a sinner, a sinner. Okay, let's, let's move on to the next one. We get to the end of it, then we'll sort of maybe wrap it up with some questions. Um, Going back to the subject of justice, and I read this to you last week, and let me, I'm going to throw this out, read it to you again. R.A. Webb says, if a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment, because sin is a reality, but the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding for the reason for its suffering. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of the penalty would be absent and justice would be disappointed and cheated of its vindication. Okay, so let's, let's grant for a second that children do go to hell who die as infants, that they do go immediately to hell. That child then has instant conscious awareness of its environments, its surroundings, and what is going on. Now I ask you this, and this is the question of the quota that I just read, how is justice done for that child when it has no conscious awareness of any crime that it has committed against the Holy God? What does justice mean to it? Compare that state of that hypothetical infant in hell to a Hitler or any person who dies in his sin, unrepentant. He is instantly aware of his surroundings, his sufferings, He's also instantly aware that this is the just suffering for the crimes that he has committed. The people in hell know why they are there. They know that they are being punished for their sins. Their conscience torments them. It screams at them. They know for what they have done. They know for what they're being punished. But with the case of the infant, it would have no knowledge of anything that it did, no conscious awareness. From its perspective, it has a clean slate. It didn't have, it didn't commit any act of rebellion against the holy God, which would summon upon it this judgment. Right, But the person who is in hell knows that justice is being meted out. This is the vindication. This is God's vindication, his wrath for the sins that that person has committed. But from the perspective of an infant in hell, it would have it would be a blank slate to that child. The whole purpose of justice would be thwarted. It would be nullified. It would be prostituted if an infant were to go to hell. The whole point of justice is to punish somebody for its own crimes. Right? We're going back to the issue of justice. What is justice? And what is it that God damns us for? Any questions on that? Steve? Yeah, 
suggesting that let's say uh, a baby uh, who died after a few months that's committed very or, or that has shown dysregulation very little is going to receive the same punishment over there. They're both in hell, but aren't there punishments different? Yeah, punishments in hell are the punishments in hell are different, but whatever that punishment is for the infant, hypothetically, because I don't believe the infant goes to hell. Whatever the punishment is for that infant, it would be far less than for a Hitler or somebody who's filled up the cup of God's wrath for their own sin. But the existence of punishment itself would be an enigma to that infant. The, the, the very existence of punishment would itself be unjust. Because the infant would say, what is this for? Whereas the person who has sinned against God, willfully rebelled, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and goes into conscious torment, Knows full well for what it's being, for what that person is being tormented for. Or punished for. Okay, so this brings up the question of, uh, maybe we should deal with the, let's deal with the age of accountability first. Before we kind of get off on another. I'm not rushing, well, I'll get to all of it, but there's a logical order here that's messed up in my notes. So let's deal with the age of accountability first. We speak of the age of accountability, and this raises the question of, does a child reach an age at which it is damnable? And I, I don't like the term age of accountability. I understand what people mean. I think it would be better to clarify and say they reach a condition of accountability. And that condition of accountability is different for every child. It's different for every child. There are mentally retarded children that I have met that are still alive today and no more able to understand the concept of God, holiness, sin, Righteousness, justice, rebellion, wickedness, their own sinful bent, their own heart. They're no more able to understand elements of the gospel today than they were 20 years ago when I met them. So the condition, it is not an age of accountability because somebody could be at an, uh, some, one child could be four years old and perfectly understand these issues. Another child could be six years old and not yet understand those issues. A, a mentally handicapped or retarded, retarded person could be 40 years old and still have the mind of an infant, and still not be able to understand those issues. Okay, so I don't like the term age of accountability, because it implies you reach that magic age, and bing, whatever it is, it's 12 or 9 or whatever, bing, you reach that magic age, and then you've reached the point where all of a sudden you're accountable or damnable. I don't think it's an age. I think it's a condition. The condition is when I reach a point, or when a child reaches a point where they know the truth, and they suppress that truth and unrighteousness, as Roman 1 described, they sin against their conscience because their conscience bears witness to the truth and they sin against their conscience and they do against the law which is written in their hearts. They suppress that truth. They rebel against God. They rebel against their creator. They rebel against their conscience and they themselves commit a willful act of rebellion. That is when a child or a person becomes accountable for their own sin. There has to be some level of understanding in the accountability. Does that make sense? So that, that should answer the question of what about my child who's eight months old and throws the fit when you put him in the car seat? And, and you have to, you have to discipline age appropriately your children from the youngest age up. I mean, you, you have to smack the hand, you have to smack them on the hind end, these things which are age appropriate, which are okay to do, that communicate to them, hey, here's the boundaries, and there's an authority structure, and you need to keep yourself into it. And that sinful bent will keep them bouncing up against the boundaries, of your parental guidance, and it will man- that sinful bent will manifest itself, but not necessarily in a willful, conscious act of rebellion against the Creator and their conscience. 
So an eight-month-old child can manifest its sinful bent without itself understanding truth and suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. It all goes back to Romans 1. Why is it that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? It is because men know there's a creator and they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So what about a child then, to answer Peg's question, what about a child who is raised in an environment where all these things go on and their conscience is misinformed? There still comes a point, maybe it's later on, I don't know. I can't say this. See, this, I can't say when that age happens. God knows when that happens because he can see the heart. And he knows when that child understands what it's doing and is rebelling. And that's the judge of all the earth will do what is right. But the child that's raised in an environment where that's all it knows is those sinful acts um, doesn't make it... There comes a point in the life of everybody who is damned where they understand creator and conscience. That's Romans 1 and 2. They understand that. There comes a point, maybe it's when they're 10. Maybe it's when they're 12. Maybe it's when they're 6. For some kids, maybe it's when they're 4. My oldest daughter understood the concepts of holiness and sin and justice and hell when she was 4 years old. I have My youngest son is 6 now. He still doesn't quite get it. But he's going to. It's going to click with him someday. So when is... When is a child held accountable for its sin? When it understands enough to be guilty of rebelling against its creator and sinning against its conscience. And then they commit the deed that damns them. And it could be just one deed. It could be just one, but they commit that willful act of rebellion. And and without parental guidance and without the grace of God, that child's sinful bent will take them straight into a course of, of active rebellion for the rest of their lives. Inevitably. Without... Discipline and without the grace of God, their sinful bent will manifest itself in a life of rebellion for the rest of their lives. Without exception. And by the grace of God, he can stop in and stop that. And by discipline, what you hope to do through parental discipline is to bent that sinful bent back up to what's right and righteous. So that they begin to live under authority and you don't allow that sinful nature to manifest itself in all of these ways. As a parent, our job is to work on the heart, but to train that heart, to train them in righteousness so that they begin to understand those concepts. And when they begin to understand those concepts, then you start sharing the gospel with your kids. Uh, I do it when, whenever in family devotions, we, I do this constantly. We talk about the issues of law and grace and sin and righteousness and holiness and violating God's law and the issues of punishment and heaven and hell and why people are punished. I share this with my kids all the time. The whole, the whole goal is to instruct them in those issues so that they begin to understand those concepts of, of righteousness. Debbie. Right. Right. Like you can listen to people's quotes and 
And what we can't give justice, you know, our definition of justice is that we bring a God who can come up with somewhat of a definition from what the Bible shows through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. Some are just going to trust us. Just the same thing as the lawsuit. They're just to open arms to people around the world who have never even heard about God. Yeah. Yep, yeah, they'll be here. Okay. <clears throat> the issue of the the issue of justice, just to respond to that, I would say I'm I'm seeking not to argue against what I think is just or with what I think is just, but what does the Bible say is God's justice for sin? And on what basis does he meet that out? And in Romans chapter 1, and all the issues that we've looked at so far, it is suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, which manifests itself in sinning against the conscience and self-righteousness and pride and all of these things. That is that is what damns an individual. Dorothy. Yeah. Right. So as, uh, the person who lives in a, a tribe off somewhere in an unreached people group will not be able to say, I didn't know enough to respond. I didn't know enough to know the truth. Or I never heard of the name of Jesus. Uh, that is going to be irrelevant on the day of judgment because Romans 1 and Romans 2, what they do know, they didn't live up to. What they do know, they suppressed. That's the, that's why we are so wicked. We know the truth. Even if we live in a culture where we hear the name of Jesus on the radio all the time, or whether we live in an unreached tribe out in the middle of the jungle, mankind knows the truth. You can see it in creation. You can see it in the conscience. And because of that, we're without excuse. God can judge or execute justice, and he can do so with vindication because we know the truth and we suppress it in unrighteousness. We know the truth and we hate it. We turn from it. Peg. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Any other questions before we, Steve? Through grace, yep. So I just want to be sure you're not suggesting that there's a second way to be saved. No. no. Yeah, we covered this last week. Um, I am not saved by the decision that I make. And I'm not saved by my faith. I'm saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which salvation comes to me. It's not my faith that is the merit that God sees that saves me. In other words, God doesn't look out and say, Oh, your faith merits salvation. It is that I express the regeneration that God has given me through faith. 
and I'm saved by his grace. So in what way is an infant saved? An infant, let me ask this question first. In what way am I saved? I'm saved because God causes me to be born again through a living faith, through his word. He regenerates my heart. He grants me repentance. He grants me the gift of faith and he imputes to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he imputes to Christ all of my sin. And I'm regenerated. That's how I'm saved. How is an infant saved? An infant is saved by God granting it or imputing to it the righteousness of Christ, imputing its guilt to Christ. It is saved by grace the same way I'm saved by grace. When for the person who is old enough to understand those issues and understand the gospel, that salvation manifests itself through repentance and faith. But for an infant who is unable to understand those things, they're saved on the same basis. It's imputed righteousness. It's always grace. God gives them salvation by grace. It's grace. It's not a decision that they make. If it doesn't manifest itself the same way it, it does through me. Because they can't, they can't, they can't exercise faith. They can't believe. They don't, they can't understand enough to believe the things that are necessary to believe. So what is the essence of salvation? If you believe at the end of the day that it's my decision that saves me, that I have to decide in order to be saved that, hey, every infant's damned. They can't exercise belief in faith. So they're all damned. They're all going to hell. But if at the end of the day you believe I'm saved by one way and one way only, and that's by the grace of Christ through imputed righteousness. Well, that happens to be the same way I believe that an infant is saved, by the grace of Christ through imputed righteousness. It's because the righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to their account. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed and credited to my account. For me, it's not on the basis of deeds which I've done. For the infant, it's not on the basis of deeds which I've done. For me, it's not on the basis of, of my faith as a merit. For the infant, it's not on the basis that its faith merits righteousness. Neither the infant nor I have done anything to merit God's righteousness. Neither of us have done anything to merit righteousness or salvation. Both of us are equally undeserving, unworthy, and equally lost and sinful. The difference is just my, a matter of my age. But both of us have been saved the same way. Righteousness has been imputed or credited to our accounts. And I've been declared innocent because another st- stood and took my punishment. Does that, does that make it clear? Yes. Well, that's not the only reason that I would believe that infants are saved. I believe that because they're damned because of active deeds of their own, their own acts of rebellion against God. So it's not just that I believe that they have, that they don't know why they're there, therefore they couldn't be there. It's that from the perspective of justice, for what would they be being punished? See, that's the question we have to come back to. What are they being punished for? Nobody's been able to give an answer for that. The only thing we can go back to is Adam's sin. Yes, they have a sinful nature which manifests itself. But what is it that damns us? What we are damned for is the acts that we commit that we are guilty for. What's that? I'm saying they... They will commit acts that they are guilty for. If they have no ability to understand 
what is righteous, what is truth and what is righteous and what God requires and acts of holiness and law and grace, if they can't understand that, they're going to manifest a, an act of, they're going to manifest a sin nature, but they're not going to commit the deeds for which people are damned. What, what infant has lied? My infant couldn't talk till they were over a year old. Yeah. I don't think she did understand she was sinning against God. Right. If if she she does she know that she's doing it. They can commit, yeah, they can commit an act of sin. Uh, doing the thrashing when you put them in water at six weeks old to give them a bath, the thrashing and screaming and throwing about, that's, that's sinful behavior. If a six-year-old did that, huh, you jerk your belt off and say, we're going upstairs. <laughs> but at six weeks old, that's different than at six years old. My six-year-old did that. We would be, we would be going at it for that type of behavior. But I don't grab my belt and start thrashing around on a six-week-old for doing that because I no, I don't. No, yeah, just to clarify, I don't thrash around on the older kids either. But I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking in extremes just so so that you can see we're talking about dealing with the same child in two different ways based upon its understanding. As parents, we do that. We don't treat a lie at one year old or two years old the same way we do when they're eight. In my household, lying is the worst crime you can commit. The punishment for lying is worse than anything else. And if you do something and then you lie about it to me, the punishment more than doubles. Because lying exponentially doubles that crime. But when my two-year-old lied, I didn't treat that two-year-old the same way I would treat a ten-year-old who lied. Because the level of understanding is different. And I'm saying it's the same thing in the way God deals with it, the way God looks at it. He sees the sinful bent, but the question is, and it goes back to Romans 1, at what point did they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? It's the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. In all of this discussion, we can't get away from Romans 1 and 2. It's sinning against the Creator, which we know exists. A two-year-old doesn't know that. A two-year-old doesn't instinctively suppress truth and unrighteousness. It manifests a sinful bent, but it doesn't do the thing that makes the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What is it that makes the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? It's the suppression of the truth. Six-week-olds don't suppress the truth. Eight-year-olds do. So that's what damns an individual, is that that conscious rebellion against what it knows to be true and an awareness that it's rebelling against what it knows to be true. Does that make sense? No, he couldn't have. He had no sinful bent. He didn't have a sinful nature. Fully man. So the question is, did Jesus, could Jesus have lied when he was two? And the answer is no, he couldn't have because he had no sinful bent. He, he couldn't. It is. It's a sin. It's, it, it, there's a difference between the way sin nature manifests itself and a conscious act of rebellion against God. So is it sinful for an infant to thrash around in the water at six weeks old? Yeah, that's a sinful nature. That's, that's, that's sin manifesting itself. 
But if that child were to die right then, would God give it eternal hell? I don't believe it would. Okay. But but now, and going back to the question of could Jesus have sinned at two years old? He couldn't have. He was unable to because he he could only do righteousness. So he he, he didn't have the sin of Adam. He, he didn't have the sin nature that Adam had, the bent towards sin or the propensity towards sin or any of that. He wasn't inclined to it whatsoever, the sin. So he wouldn't have even manifested sinful nature because he had no sinful, na- sinful nature to manifest. Right, it does. Yes, same time he could be tempted in a real way. Yeah, and I think his temptation was worth worse because he couldn't sin. That's what made his temptation worse than ours. It's because he was unable to sin. Look, you endure temptation, and temptation is agony to you because you can't. You can just sin and give in to temptation. Then the temptation's gone. He couldn't do that, and he didn't do it. I think his his temptation was worse for him. Because he couldn't sin, he didn't sin, he had no propensity to sin, and yet as man, he was tempted in every way. He had the same things presented to him that are presented to us. But that's off on another subject. Let me let me quickly deal with this last one, and Dave's brought this up the last two weeks in a row. And then if you want to discuss this further, you want to talk about it, I'm happy to do that. So I'm not trying to shut everybody down or just hurry through this, because but I know that I've got, my time is limited and I'm all done. What's that? <laughs> Next week, Jess will be here. Thanks for bringing that up. <clears throat> so... What, now the question is, what does an infant experience, assuming that everything I've said is true, and you're free to disagree with it, or you're free to say, look, I don't think we can know, we just have to, I, I, and I don't care. I think the Bible gives us enough to put together the pieces and say with reasonable confidence, I think assurance, that all babies who die go to heaven. That's my position. You're free to disagree. It doesn't make you a heretic. It doesn't make me a heretic if I'm wrong. It doesn't make you a heretic if you're wrong, whatever. Assuming that a child, when they die, goes to heaven to be with the Lord... What then does that child experience? What does it, what would it, its experience be? And Dave brought this up because of the question of the soul and how much is the soul developed? Is the soul of an infant very infantile in heaven? Or is it a fully developed soul? And I'm, I'm starting to tread in waters that's a, a little bit more philosophical and over my head, but I'll, I'll try and sort of walk through the waters. If it gets too deep, I'm just going to say I can't go any further than this. But here's what I would suspect, and I'm just, Addressing this because it was asked. Here's what I would suspect. I would suspect that the conscious existence of an infant who has died would be much like the conscious existence of an angel when it was created. An angel, when it was created, when the angels were created, the angels came into existence, and all it had really consciously ever known was the realm of heaven and the worship of God and the presence of holiness and glory and light and all of that, and it knew what it was there for and it knew what it was there to do. I think that the experience of an infant would be the same. An infant who is stillborn or miscarried, its first conscious awareness would be paradise. That's what it would experience. That's what it would see. That's what it would instantly understand. There's no conscious awareness in the womb that we know of. None of us can remember it. There's no conscious awareness of when we were just two or four or eight cells altogether. We had no conscious awareness then. Our conscious awareness came much later but it's not because our soul has developed, it's because our bodies develop. And our bodies are connected with our souls, and so the conscious awareness comes at a point where the body is capable of informing the soul. There's a connection between soul and body, or the immaterial aspect of man and the material aspect of man. There comes a point where our immaterial elements are informed and conscious and aware and functioning in a way that is facilitated because our bodies have developed to a certain level. So what would an infant experience, since I've never died as an infant, I don't know for certain, but I would hypothesize this, that an infant would experience instant bliss, an instant glory, 
and the presence of heaven and its conscious awareness would be much like that of the angels. It simply was in heaven and that's all it's ever known. It's never known suffering, crying, weeping, gnashing of teeth, uh, disease, death, anything like that. That's as far as I can go into the material, immaterial combination of man. There's probably no maturing of that spirit that's the body spirit. It already exists in form where it experiences Yeah, Dave's question, there's probably no maturing of that soul or immaterial aspect in the same way that our body matures. And I think we have to distinguish between a soul's soul ability and what a soul experiences. So does does our soul ever um, does our soul have to mature as we grow up? And I would say I, I, or develop capacities. I don't think the soul develops capacities. I think that the capacities of our immaterial elements are limited by our physical bodies. So that a mentally retarded individual has no less or more incomplete or more unable soul than I do. Its soul functions are limited by its physical functions because it is tied to the physical body in which it is. And yet at the same time, each of our souls, our immaterial elements, develops disciplines of godliness and character and those things which are part of us, which informs us. So it's not that any one soul has greater abilities than another. It's that... Um, it's that our souls do experience things through the physical realm that inform us and educate us and develop us over the course of time. It, it, it is, and, and when it comes to the combination of soul and body, or spirit and body, material and immaterial, we kind of just have to, we, we basically have to look at what does the Bible say about our physical and our soul. We know that the soul is eternal and began at the moment of conception, and yet we know that we are so connected to the physical that my soul is contained in this body somehow. There are immaterial elements of it, my thoughts. You can't cut open my head and see my thoughts right now. All you can see is atoms, molecules, cells. That's all that's in my head. The thoughts and the functions, the emotions and the will and the intellect and all of that are part of the immaterial self. But the immaterial self is so connected with the material self that Paul could say when the immaterial self is absent from the body, it's naked. Because we have to be with a physical body. That's what we're created for. And that's what we will get in the new heavens and the new earth. (sighs) (laughs) Steve. That's good, because next time I do an adult Sunday school class, I'm just going to... We're going to look at John 3.16 today, guys. We're going to take something really simple that we can all agree on. Yeah, good point. Very well stated. You've got, you know, a a baby who dies goes from a point of having its immaterial self limited and hampered by its physical body to a point of having its immaterial self 
totally uninhibited by any physical body or sin. So, and we're in the middle. And the infant goes from inhibitions and limitations to instant no limitations, and it skips right across to us, graduates beyond where we're at, and then we, we catch up when we go to glory. Yeah, Brian? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And and depravity does the sin nature the sin nature limits the expression of our immaterial self because of this body. Sorry? Without the Holy Spirit we wouldn't yeah, we wouldn't be enlightened to truth at all. Oh, it's ten thirty. Okay, we're done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had and for what we could look at and discuss, and these are very weighty things heavy things for us. We pray that you would give us um, clarity as we think them through. We know that in the end, we can always come back to the reality that you are good, you are holy, you are just, and the judge of all the earth will do what is right and what is good. We thank you that you determine what is good and not us, and we look forward to the day when we will understand and know fully as we are now known. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.